Welcome back to the Content That Grows podcast. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Lauren Fernaro, who is head of content at Scribe. Scribe is an AI-powered tool that documents processes for you. Uh, Here, she's used her passion for content, SEO, and experimentation to grow the content engine from 8,000 to 70,000 estimated monthly traffic and publish over 700 blogs in one year. Lauren, uh, excited to have you here today. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and also excited that you said the scribe plug, so I don't even have to. I just might. (laughs) Exactly. Right. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, Awesome. So, I mean, just jumping right in, like, um, what what is it that made you all at at scribe like so bullish on seo is a is a primary means of of creating and distributing your content the short answer is we had seen it work before Jacob, my former boss, had worked at G2 where he had seen success with SEO, and I myself had seen success working on SEO at previous companies. We were very lucky, I will say, to have buy-in from upper management very early on. And I want to be mindful of the fact that not every team is going to have that luck that we have. So I do recommend if you're in the position where you know that you're bullish or interested in SEO, however, leadership isn't or doesn't quite understand what the value of it is to do research on competitors, that's how we set up our projectors, our projections very early on when we weren't sure what our numbers would look like, even who our ICP was, how we wanted to speak to them. We did a lot of research into HREFs looking at different websites, how they performed in the SERP. The Mm -hmm. question I recommend asking is, does it look as if this person or this team has a content engine behind what's out there? Are they creating a significant amount of content? Do they have a high domain rating and a lot of traffic? And think of the big guys, really powerful players. If it looks as if they've invested in content, then you can likely assume that it's worth their time and that they're seeing significant results from it. So that's a great way to start off when you're having that conversation. And then setting goals that are very realistic for yourself at the beginning and looking for leading indicators, starting with a small number and seeing if you can get that content to rank. And if any of that content ranks, see if any of it converts to sort of build up that momentum as well as increase trust because you're likely going to be starting with a smaller budget. Yeah, that's great. And I'm glad you jumped right into a really meaty uh, part of, of everything, which is just sort of that like executive buy-in. Um, Mm -hmm. and I've said before that like, it's one of the biggest factors in whether or not a company is successful in their content efforts that not many people talk about, which is, is leadership bought in or is it like this constant having to pitch and explain and justify? And, um, and I like your, your point around, looking at some of those because I think that's, um, I think there's a lot of of founders that are like, I, you know, we want to be the, we want to be the hub spot of our industry. We want to be the whatever. And they'll gladly like point to where that brand is now and what they do now. But when it comes down to like, you know, what does that mean and how do we get there? Um, then, you know, sometimes can be a bit more of like, well, why should we do content? You know? Uh, so I think it's a great point of like pointing to some of these and just saying, um, this has been a big lever. We can kind of reverse engineer some of that. And, and with that, you can kind of see this was a worthwhile investment for them. 
Exactly. Content takes time. And to see the benefit from it, it's going to take even more time if you're looking at not vanity metrics, right? If you're looking at something beyond traffic increase. And when we're digging into what those other companies do, you made an excellent point. You shouldn't be looking at where they are today with however 100,000 uh, tra- monthly estimated monthly traffic that they have. You should look at where they started a couple of years ago and then see how that built up over time. And then, of course, being aware that you're going to see potentially even lower numbers depending on what your site is looking like. But that doesn't mean that it's not worth it and that the ROI won't eventually compound in incredible ways. But there is a lot of trust that has to go into it. It means being willing to watch the numbers do their work and sometimes sitting back um, or in our case, creating a bunch more content, which I'm sure we'll chat about later. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I agree. And I think that's, um, you know, something we certainly work on a bit with our clients is, is like, I think most founders can understand it takes time to get to the level of a, you know, HubSpot or someone like that, mm-hmm. if, if ever really getting there. Um, but they need those like milestones or ways to gauge, are we actually on the right track? Um, and, and know that they're getting there. And so that's, that's an important area certainly to, to work through. Um, Absolutely. so I like, I guess just to maybe, um, wrap up that part of, of what we're talking about around like, you know, the executive buy-in and some of that. Um, maybe it'd be helpful just to share for folks listening, like, even though you have it, like how often are you still kind of like meeting, talking through, because obviously you don't just like get, you know, blank check buy-in and, and no one ever asks you a single question. So um, it was that monthly, quarterly, do you pitch yearly plans? Like what's some of that look like? As far as plans, we do develop quarterly plans, but we are meeting once a month with leadership. They are incredibly involved and incredibly supportive of the different strategies that we're employing. And they're passionate about us experimenting and trying new things, uh, taking as many bat hits at bat as you might say. And yep. because of that, There's a lot of opportunity and flexibility to pivot. The budget itself is relatively standard, but what will evolve is the type of content we're creating based on what we're seeing and how we're prioritizing based on our conversations. That is so important if you're ever looking to expand your budget or if you're just looking to justify the fact that you've put a certain number on the dotted line without seeing that return yet. You want to be able to have clear projections and then align yourself against those projections, which will be doing every six months or so. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so obviously, you know, what you're doing uh, around SEO and, and a lot of the content you're creating is not in a vacuum. Um, so I'd love to kind of hear how you're intentional about like aligning some of the stuff you're doing with other marketing campaigns or just like paid ads, uh, anything else you kind of have going on the marketing front? Cause that's obviously a, an important part is kind of how that all ties together. The way that we've structured the marketing team is that you have me sitting on content, which in quotes for those who are listening essentially means 
uh, SEO distribution as my primary channel. However, I'm collaborating with other members of the user acquisition channel as, re as well as our product marketing team. In saying that, that means we also have a head of influencers who is absolutely brilliant and a head of paid ads, paid ads who is also brilliant. That means that we have the opportunity to collaborate with one another and organize our campaigns together. As we mentioned earlier, optimization is a really large part of our efforts and that is considered an ongoing effort along mm -hmm. with net new content that we develop. And I make sure to prioritize accordingly. If you're going to be publishing content at a high volume, you need to be mindful of the requirement of optimization, especially with changes coming in the algorithm. But also being mindful that when you're collaborating with other teams, you need to identify who the owners are for certain projects. And having myself as a stakeholder with projects in paid ads versus the owner frees up my time to then work as an individual contributor in projects like that while owning the other projects that fall under my jurisdiction. Sure. Okay. Um, cool. And is that similar, like, kind of monthly, quarterly, in terms of how you plan broader marketing stuff and, and make sure you kind of keep that alignment? Or is it more like what you're saying? It's just like uh, representation and, and, and ad hoc, uh, or is it more planned? We do meet regularly, so the marketing team will meet once every week. However, when it comes to those larger projects, when we're doing those calls where we're reporting on what our strategy is month over month, we'll also have been collaborating with other members of user acquisition or marketing. So in short, setting it out month by month, but consistently checking in, especially when you're on disparate remote teams, it's yeah. even more important to make sure you have that connection and you're able to collaborate and document what needs to be documented. Cool. And how big is the user acquisition team? There are three of us that are leading it, and we work with a variety of brilliant other team members, um, as well as contractors. I primarily work with contractors, including a wonderful content editor, Christina Ballinger, and several freelancers who help us develop the content. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So fairly small team overall, and then you have some additional like reinforcement and contractors and stuff. Oh, definitely. Um, and some yeah. great tools because we yeah. definitely need them. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, that's awesome. Um, so digging in a bit more with Scribe specifically, like what are some of the unique details of the product itself and like the buyer journey that your customers go through um, that kind of shapes how you think about what, what content will fit best in your strategy? I'm going to take this opportunity to lean in on the scribe plug just a little bit more. So the sure. tool itself, as we mentioned, is a process documentation tool. But essentially, that means it is capturing your screen and creating a document that includes text, links, and annotated screenshots. The opposite might be you manually writing a document, a step-by-step -step guide or SOP, or even recording your screen to create a video. Instead of doing that, you have something that automatically generates that document for you, and it even provides you with those annotations and screenshots of every step that you took. It's incredibly useful, but back to your question, it is also incredibly horizontal. So any vertical could essentially use scribe and we ran into that very early on where we were trying to identify who it was that could best use our product how we wanted to talk to them and 
I think we started out a little too broad. We were trying to find certain departments and we were throwing out whoever it might be and then leaning in on creating content clusters around, let's say, HR as an example. Let's say we focused on something like onboarding. And what we quickly realized is that instead of looking at different types of departments, we needed to start looking at a type of person. So we identified who we call the go-to person. The go-to person is essentially that one person on any team that is solving everyone else's problems. They are constantly answering questions. They're training their colleagues. They have their hand in several different pies, so to speak. Yeah. By speaking to the go-to person, you can find that person in any type of team, which freed us up to start looking at it from a use case perspective. We're now creating content that is essentially focused on why a person might need Scribe, why they're looking for that kind of software, and where that lives in any other industry. It really opened up finding not only why Scribe is relevant, but why it matters and why it's integral to someone who might be using it. That's how we ended up evolving the type of content we were creating, and then narrowing down to what kind of user not only would use our product and find value in it, but would activate and then be a really consistent user who would then spread it out to their team. Yeah. Okay. So a bit more like jobs to be done or, or that type of thing where it's, it's not even necessarily a certain title or, or anything in a certain type of company. It's just a person trying to do this or, you know, following these sort of behaviors and we can help them with that. Exactly. Like I imagine, Nate, you might have run into those problems yourself and you probably know that you need to train me how to use this tool. You need to make sure that I'm able to log on. And what that does is it ends up taking up a lot of your time. So if I'm thinking about it from that perspective, I'm able to identify the content, one that ranks, that's worth publishing. But that also really resonates. So you get that high intent user from the get go. Yeah, cool. And how does that map to figuring out the content and like how to address that now that you kind of have that shift in, in looking we, for those folks. We use the hub and spoke model, which is incredibly helpful for the type of content we're creating. We've found that starting with the idea, looking into the pain points, typing in the questions that we think someone might ask. And by think, I mean either doing a significant amount of research on what we already know, having several user conversations, and then just asking them, what do you call this product? What is this product to you? Why do you use this product? That helps us identify those initial keywords and we're able to build the framework for long tail off that really easily. That ended up expanding into us creating a structure that we knew we could follow. If a type of content worked, let's say SOP cluster performs incredibly well, then we know that something similar, for example, a job aid probably will have a significant result as well. So just digging into it that way, and then you're able to lean more on the data, data as you publish more. Yeah. Okay. Uh, cool. So Hub and Spoke, so primarily blog content. Um, is that making its way into any other formats, uh, like video, podcasts, any anything else like that that's kind of getting integrated as part of that? Blog is our primary channel right now for organic distribution. Of course, like I mentioned, we have the paid ads and we have our incredible influencer team. We are interested in foraying into video, but... It's very important to me and to the team that we're looking at the channel and the audience and making sure that it's resonating. So video will not be us expanding to create all of these new videos for the sake of it. It's very much where is our audience and how can we create the content that works for them. 
if that answer is video, then we will create videos to solve their problems. Yep. Good. I like that answer. It's not, uh, oh, thanks. <laughs> it's not video. It's not video because someone thinks that it is fun or, you know, that's where their passion is or, or any of that. It's, we will do video if we think that it meets people where they're at and delivers something in a format that they want, uh, which is always a big thing. We're kind of always preaching, especially even on this podcast, just like, you know, especially around social and distribution and repurposing all stuff. It's like, you don't need to do it all. You just need to do whatever your audience and, and prospects care about and, and where they spend time and stuff. So exactly. Yeah. I've done, I've done many a uh, Reddit rabbit hole where I've learned where a lot of our target audiences are and learned a lot about what their pain points are. And I cannot recommend enough just digging in and putting in the work to see where they, where they are searching themselves. And then reminding yourself, if you're answering a query on Google, they probably want an answer to your question, not necessarily a really long-winded narrative. Mm -hmm. And it's a bit humbling as a content creator to think of it from that perspective. But in the end, you're giving them content that is absolutely supporting them and then is going to rank because it's giving them what they need. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something, you know, you mentioned Jacob earlier. Um, and I think that's something that he had shared and was pretty adamant about was like, it, it needs to answer their question. It needs to, you know, satisfy what they were searching for. Um, not be like some award-winning piece, you know, and, and, um, I think making sure that that focus stays on like, am I actually answering that question, uh, and getting to the point and not just, uh, you know, turning this into more it needs to be. Exactly. Think about when you're searching on Google to answer anything. I am absolutely supportive of someone who wants to write the next great American novel, right? But I also just want to know where cat food is. <laughs> so sometimes yeah. it's just a matter of matching audience, matching channel, and giving, creating the content that matches that best. Yeah, I agree. Um, so another thing, just kind of uh, go back to what we, when I, um, shared in your bio around like 700 blog posts in a year. Um, so I mean, doing, doing the math 50, 60 a month. Um, what, what are some of the, like at a high volume like that, what are some of the biggest challenges or, or struggles that you would see in terms of like managing and overseeing that and to, to really kind of stay on track and, and where you think, um, Others might kind of get hung up on on that amount of volume. There are a few that I've run into and that we've been able to solve for. The first, I would say, is operations. Saying that you want to create content without creating a structure that enables you to do that. The, one of the very first things we did once we realized we wanted to do such a large push was identify the tools that I needed and the writers that I needed to work with in order to make that happen. We ended up onboarding a tool called Letter Drop. It's a very useful content creation. More than that, I'm sure they'd be mad at me if I just called it a content creation tool that helps me do my keyword research, manage my writers, develop my briefs, and then publish the content. It integrates with Webflow, which we use. Yeah. 
directly from one source. It helped save a significant amount of my time and also meant that I had something in place that would help me assign, help me track what needs to go out when, and help me templatize my briefs, which leads me into the next issue is I think we end up doing more effort on the back end than on the front end. And that means that you'll get a piece of content that is nowhere near perfect and you spend a significant amount of your time going back and forth with your writers. Um, but if you prepare your writer at the ahead of time, if you're creating a style guide that's very, very clear, if you're templatizing your content, including examples of exactly what it is you're referencing, if you're providing them with the resources that they need, and also working with writers that you've identified who either know your product or really know the niche you're writing to, you're able to get that content so much closer to what you need it to be so that when you get to those rounds of edits, you're not going back and forth. You've created something that's already already incredible and you're putting the fine finishing touches on it you're finalizing that product which takes me then to my last point which I think may be a bit controversial I think we need to get rid of the idea that a piece of content needs to be perfect before we publish it we have so much opportunity to optimize the content that's out there it's a huge part of what we do at scribe and in doing that, I've been able to create better content, more useful content. I've been able to repurpose and interlink. I understand my audience more because I'm constantly in the content I'm creating for them and seeing what isn't working. Mm -hmm. If I didn't do that, if I just published and waited to publish, one, we would never have been able to publish at the volume that we did and seen the success that we did. But in another way, I wouldn't have the chance to be living as organically in the content we publish as well, especially yeah. with these algorithm updates. It's a great opportunity for me to dig in and understand it because I'm constantly working on the content and thinking of it as a living entity. Yep. Awesome. So operations, having good systems for that, um, prepping writers, style guides, systems, brief templates, all that as mm -hmm. much as possible before the content's created, and then um, uh, like progress over perfection and getting stuff out so that you can go back, touch it up, um, and just be kind of living and breathing. Um, exactly. Yeah, uh, I, I think those are great. Uh, I've definitely preached a good amount on the, the systems and, and operation side being important as you get higher volume. Um, but all, all three, I think, are, are really, really good learnings. Um, from someone who's obviously lived it on the, the volume side of it. Um, so my question is if you're, um, if you're doing that amount of volume and it's, and it's happened for a while, um, where do you think it goes from here? Do you think it starts to reach a point where you're like, Oh, we could actually go down 40, 50% and just sort of like have a good amount of time dedicated to optimizing existing and then like still publishing maybe 10 or 15 new ones a month, or does it actually kind of lay the groundwork and you see an opportunity where it like, I think, you know, company by company, it would depend on, on the mm -hmm. opportunity. But I mean, do you think it's kind of dialed back and maintain and keep growing? Or do you see an opportunity to like triple it and start doing, you know, 150, 200 posts a month? Right now for us, it's the former. And that's not because we don't like or enjoy or want to continue publishing at a high volume, but it's because what we have out there right now is already working so well and we want to make it stronger. Yeah. We have in many ways reached our audience through organic, 
there's always an opportunity to grow. There will always be more keywords. But as I mentioned before, I don't want to create content for the sake of creating content. I want to create content for high intent audiences. Mm -hmm. Now that we have data from what we have built, let's see how we can optimize. Is there room to combine? Is there room to interlink? How can we strengthen this engine? The reason we were publishing at high velocity was not because we wanted to say, hey, we did 700 in a year, although that is pretty cool, I will say. Mm. We did it because we wanted to have something out there that we could then stick our teeth into and start playing around with and building something more with it. So as I mentioned, for now, the answer is we will be publishing at a much lower volume because we are prioritizing what we have out there. But the sky's the limit. We have so many opportunities to create something new. And if those new keywords come in as new technologies develop, for example, AI was a really large campaign of ours, creating content around there, seeing where our product fits in, we will always be evolving and moving in that direction. Yeah, awesome. Um, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, but definitely a cool example of just going quickly, establishing a really large base getting a lot of that coming in and giving you a, a larger body of work to be able to continue to optimize and, and build off of. Totally. Um, so any any last points you want to make on that topic before we shift over into the, the final four questions? I think just remembering that volume does not discount quality in any way and that there are ways that you can create incredible content that works for you and works for your audience without stopping yourself and preventing yourself from the chance to optimize and outgrow that content. Yeah, that's great. All right. So we'll shift over final four, same questions we ask every guest. Um, and we'll start with what's a learning, a recent learning or success, uh, that you'd like to share. A recent success that's really exciting is our development of paid month over month. We saw a 50% increase in paid conversions, which is such an exciting uh, opportunity to look at the optimizations we've made and know that we've created content that's resonating in the way that it should. So I'm very excited for that win. It also makes me think and recommend to absolutely experiment as much as you can and make sure that you're documenting and measuring that data very heavily because even though some of these optimizations have been a success, some of our experiments have also taught us that there are things we absolutely don't want to do. And in that case, you want to make sure you're tracking it and catching it before it has a negative impact on your content. But if you don't experiment, there are some big swings that you might miss. So definitely recommend taking advantage of that. Yeah, that's great. Um, I think you've talked about this a bit already, but for your company, what role does content play in the overall strategy? We sit on the user acquisition team, as I mentioned, with our brilliant other team members, but we are, as most marketing teams, wearing many hats and collaborating across the entire marketing team, but also working very closely with the product teams, creating campaigns, working alongside Eng to understand what the product's doing, seeing what pain points there are from customer success. So it's an incredibly integrated role, but if you were to look at the bottom line of my metrics, it's user acquisition. Yeah, awesome. Um, and then, you know, how does your company define success like for you and your team? There are two primary ways of success. One is we want people to understand and love Scribe. So that is a non-measurable 
item, but it is also incredibly important to us. We call users who love the product raving fans, and we celebrate them just as much as we celebrate the metrics. That being said, we are a very data-oriented company, and we do always have our eye on the bottom line. So for myself, with user acquisition being my priority, I'm looking not just at signups, but I'm also looking at those who have signed up and then used the product, as well as those who have then converted to a paid user. So I'm able to understand the longevity of someone who is signing up and knowing that that is an incredibly useful customer. Beyond that, we're also, of course, looking at how the content is performing, not so much traffic as the low account of bounce rate and the time on page to make sure that even content that isn't necessarily designed to heavily convert is still resonating and then can be interlinked from. Yeah, awesome. Um, And then lastly, you know, it's kind of a fun one to end on. Like, what's your least favorite marketing conversation that's happening in social channels right now and why? Oh my gosh. Um, that SEO is dead. It is absolutely alive and well. And it is such an exciting opportunity if you look at what's happening with the helpful content update. And even with AI, the other conversation being that AI is taking our jobs. It's mm-hmm. absolutely not going to. We have the opportunity to elevate ourselves, to elevate our content, to create better, stronger content. And like any Google update, like any channel update, as it's introduced, as it evolves, we just get to identify new tools to use and take advantage of what's already there to make something even better. So people that are disheartened, I say I'm actually incredibly excited. Yeah, I I think that's great. I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like, that's fine. I, I, I welcome anyone buying into that and, uh, and moving, you know, moving into other stuff because it just creates more room for for the folks who understand that it's it's not dead; it's just changing. Um, but that's, I mean, for me personally, that's what I've loved about SEO for a really long time. What just was uh, kind of drew me to it was that it was it wasn't a static thing. You know, it wasn't like you know, learn the tax code and now you know the tax code. Other yes. than like maybe a change once in a while, it's like the the playing field is leveled uh often you know and it makes it so dynamic and interesting and always learning and um so it doesn't you know maybe a bit more disruptive now um but doesn't feel like uh you know quite the doom and gloom that you mentioned that some folks are are posting so it's so Um, much fun it's like our game our our jobs are gamified we have the opportunity to try to rank number one how many people can say that (laughs) totally (laughs) totally (laughs) Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, this has been really great. I appreciate you joining. Um, and, uh, you know, for anyone listening, if you want to check out any other episodes, visit 10 slash podcast, uh, like, and subscribe on uh, your favorite channels. And Lauren, thanks so much for joining today. This is really awesome. Thanks, Nate. I had a blast. <laughs>